save me. But I can't let such doubts prevent the attempt. Someone must listen, and even more importantly, someone must understand. For it is the greatest truth of our age. Information is not knowledge. In retrospect, the pattern was there to be seen by anyone attentive enough to trace it. A remarkable series of discoveries in history, anthropology, and archaeology had made headlines for several years. But they were all, on their surface, attributable to the great advances made possible in each of those fields by the continued march and intermingling of bio and information technology. And so those of us who might have detected a controlling presence at work simply got on with our lives. Our lives. Yes, even I had a life before all this began. In fact, by the standards of modern capitalism, I had a good life, one graced by both money and professional respect. A psychiatrist by training, I taught criminal psychology in New York, the city of my birth and childhood, at John Jay University, once a comparatively small college of criminal justice which had grown during the movement toward privatized prisons that gained such enormous momentum during the first two decades of this century to become one of the wealthiest educational institutions in the country. Even the crash of 07 and the resultant worldwide recession had not been enough to stop John Jay's expansion. The school has always produced America's best correctional officers, and by 2023, with mandatory drug and quality of life punishments so stringent that fully 2% of the nation's population was behind bars, the United States needed nothing so much as prison guards. All of which allowed those who, like me, taught the headier subjects at John Jay to be paid a more than decent salary. In addition, I'd recently written a best-selling book, The Psychological History of the United States, the second of my degrees being in history, and so I could actually afford to live in Manhattan. It was those two areas of expertise, criminology and history, that brought a handsome, mysterious woman to my office on September 13, 2023. It was a grim day in the city, with the air so still and filthy that the mayor had asked the populace to venture outside only if their business was urgent. This my visitors certainly seemed to be. From the first it was obvious that she was profoundly shaken, and I tried to be as gentle as possible as I led her to a chair. She asked in a hushed tone if I was indeed Dr. Gideon Wolfe. Assured that I was, she informed me that she was Mrs. Vera Price, and I recalled instantly that she was the wife of a certain John Price, who'd been one of the movie and theme park industry's leading special effects wizards until he'd been murdered outside his New York apartment building a few days earlier. Murdered, I might add, in a particularly unpleasant way. His body had been torn to such tiny pieces by some unknown weapon that only recourse to his DNA records had made identification possible. I offered my condolences and asked if there'd been any progress on the case, only to be told that there hadn't been and would probably never be, not unless I helped her. They, it seemed, wouldn't permit it. Wondering just who they might be, I continued to listen as Mrs. Price explained that she and her husband had had two children, the first of whom had died, like 40 million other people worldwide, during the Staphylococcus epidemic of 2006. The Price's second child, a daughter, was now in high school in the city, and even she, Mrs. Price claimed, had been threatened by them. Who? I finally asked, suspecting that this might be a case of hysterical paranoia. What do they want, and why come to me about it? I remembered a television interview you did last year, she answered, rummaging through her bag, 
and downloaded it. Crime and history, those are your fields, right? Well then, here. She revealed a silvery computer disk and tossed it onto my desk. Take a look at that. They confiscated the original, but I found a copy in my husband's deposit box. But, not now. I just wanted to bring you the disk. Come to my house tonight if you think there's any way you can help. Here's the address. The flutter of a slip of paper, and she was back out the door, leaving me nothing to do but shake my head and slip the disk into the drive of my computer. It took all of one minute to look at the images that were burnt onto the thing, and then I found myself grabbing for the wireless phone in my wallet in a state of agitated shock. I began punching a familiar sequence of numbers until Vera Price's words about them came back to me. I ended the wireless call and picked up the landline on my desk. Whoever they were, they couldn't have tapped it. Not yet. I redialed the number, then heard a disgruntled voice. Max Jenkins. Max, I said to my oldest friend in the world, a former city cop who is now a private detective. Don't move. What do you mean, don't move? What the hell kind of a way is that to talk to people, you bloodless Anglo-Saxon bastard? I'm going out to lunch. Oh, I countered, and suppose I told you I'm looking at possible evidence that Tariq Khaldun didn't shoot Forrester. Silence for an instant. Then, is that insane statement supposed to make me less hungry? No, Max. Because it isn't. Max, will you shut up? We're talking about the murder of the president. No, you're talking about it. I'm talking about lunch. I sighed. How about if I bring the food? How about if you bring it fast? Twenty minutes later, Max and I were both sitting in front of a bank of computers that nearly covered an old desk in his office on 22nd Street near the Hudson River. As we stared at his main screen, we did our worst to a couple of vegetable burgers I'd picked up from the deli downstairs. So engrossed in what we were seeing, even the ever-jaded Max, that we didn't even have time to engage in our usual nostalgia for the days before the devastating national E. coli outbreak of 2021, when you could still get a real hamburger at something other than the most careful and expensive restaurants in town. On the screen in front of us was the by then deathly familiar scene of three years earlier. The podium in the hotel ballroom in Chicago. The impressive figure of President Emily Forrester striding up, wiping a few beads of sweat from her head and preparing to accept the nomination of her party for a second term. And, in the distance, the face. The assassin's face that had been enlarged and made familiar to every man, woman, and child in the country since the discovery just a year ago of these private digicam images taken by some still anonymous person in the crowd. It was a face that, after only a two-month search, had been given a name, Tariq Khaldun, minor functionary in the Afghan consulate in Chicago. Justice had been swift. Khaldun, constantly and pathetically shouting his innocence, was convicted within months and had recently begun serving a life sentence in a maximum security facility outside Kansas City. As a result, diplomatic relations between the United States and Afghanistan, always fragile, had been strained almost to the breaking point. But Max and I had other problems to worry about that day, specifically the fact that on the disk given to me by Mrs. Price, the images, instead of proceeding onto the scene of panic that usually followed the assassination, suddenly disappeared. The screen went black for a few seconds, then came alive again with a replay of the crime, 
one in which the area where the eye was accustomed to seeing Khaldun's face was a carefully delineated blank. Next, the screen went black a second time, and finally a third version of the same sequence appeared. But in this go-round, the man wielding the gun in the background was someone entirely different. Asian, maybe Chinese, certainly not Afghan. I turned to my bearded friend. What do you think? Eyes ever on the screen as he chewed on a sliver of potato, Max answered, I think they cooked these fries in llama dung. He tossed his paper dish aside. The disc, Max, I said impatiently. Is it evidence of a forgery or not? Max shrugged. Could be. Nobody was better than Price when it came to image manipulation. And we all know that you can't believe a goddamn thing you don't see firsthand anymore. But this isn't setting off any alarms in my software. If his programs, and they were the best, weren't catching any evidence of deliberate manipulation in what we were watching, then something very confusing was going on. And as that something concerned one of the seminal acts of political violence of our time, the implications of the disc, along with the cause of Vera Price's desperate behavior and statements in my office, became uncomfortably apparent. If Price was mixed up in something, Max mumbled, then we should get a look at the spot where he was killed. The police went over it pretty thoroughly. I used to be the police, Gideon, Max answered, stroking his beard. We ought to take a look for ourselves. And there's one other thing. He squinted, moving his fat frame closer to the computer. I'm picking up something else on this disc. Something encrypted, and I mean but encrypted. It'd take a while to unlock it, but I'd swear it's there. One step at a time, I said. If this isn't just some special effects genius's idea of fooling around, we've opened up one very ugly can of worms already. We don't need two. Hey, you brought this crap to me, Sherlock. He belched once and frowned as he went to work on his keyboard. Damn it. I should have known better than to let you get the food. That evening, Max combed the sidewalk outside the Price's building on Central Park West, while I went up to the penthouse to see the recently bereaved. I found her huddled with her daughter in a huge living room that overlooked the park, and informed her that, given what I'd seen on the disc, I did understand her fears. But I still needed to know just who the they she'd talked so insistently about that afternoon were. She explained that her first move on finding the disc among her husband's effects had been to go to the FBI but they'd only confiscated the thing immediately and hinted not so subtly that any discussion of it on her part could prove very risky for both her and her daughter. When Mrs. Price had found the backup copy, she figured she had nowhere to turn and was on the verge of destroying it when she remembered the interview I'd done on public television. I asked her if she was aware that there was apparently a second batch of information on the disc, to which she said that she wasn't, but that it didn't surprise her, nor did her husband's evident encryption of it. He'd apparently been doing a lot of contract work for a private client lately, and although he'd kept her in the dark about its nature, she had discovered that he was being paid an astronomical fee for it. Astronomical for somebody whose day job already brought down enough to cover a penthouse on Central Park West, a century-old mansion in L.A., and one of the few waterfront houses in the Hamptons that had survived the hurricanes of 05 obviously meant quite a bit. But, though my curiosity was piqued, Mrs. Price could tell me nothing more. So I left the grieving wife and daughter, after receiving the promise of a fee that, 
by my own humble standards, was itself pretty damned astronomical. As soon as I was back on the street, Max urgently yoked my neck into one of his heavy arms. Let's get the hell out of here, he said, eyeing the building's doorman and then the darkened expanse of Central Park across the street. Why? I asked, stumbling as he pulled me down the block toward a free taxi. Because, he answered, opening the cab's door and shoving me in. You have gotten me involved in some very bizarre crap, Wolf. He pointedly refused to talk about his discovery while we were in the cab. When we got back to Max's building, my friend jumped out of the vehicle, closed the door before I could follow, and said, This is going to take a few hours. Go home. I'll call you. Before I could argue, he was inside. I took the cab downtown to my loft in Tribeca. Procrastinating until Max's phone call, I switched on my computer, printed out the first section of the late edition of the New York Times, then settled into my couch with a bottle of Lithuanian vodka and started leafing through the paper. The experiences of the day and evening making me see the stories it contained in other than the usual trusting light. The Times reported the details of half a dozen hotspots around the world in which the United States was either diplomatically or militarily involved. And I found myself wondering if computer disks containing bizarre, undiscovered information about all those other crises existed. And in that unsettled state of mind, I drifted off to sleep. I was awakened by the telephone. On answering, I once again heard Max's voice. Get up here. I broke the encryption, and I've got a crapload of other stuff, too. Jesus, Gideon, this deal is getting spooky. When I arrived at Max's, I found him switching on the various systems he used to jam and otherwise thwart listening devices, after which he guided me over to a stack of DNA sequencing and identification equipment near a window that had a beautiful view of the river. I found a few hairs embedded in the brick wall at the murder scene, Max explained, indicating the buzzing equipment. I ran them through my remote terminal while we were there, but what I got back didn't make any sense, so I wanted to try it again on the big rig. Results came up the same. A few of the samples belonged to John Price, but the rest? The rest match a guy who's in jail. In jail? Then how? Don't start asking questions yet, Gideon, or we'll be here the rest of the night. So while I'm trying to figure out how somebody who's already locked up could off our boy, I find these. He dropped a few metal pellets about the size of mouse feces into my hand. Any idea what they are? No, I answered dimly. I didn't either, until I ran them for stains. Price's blood was there.